0: In this episode, I talk with Tibetologist, translator, and Tantric Buddhist meditation teacher, Glenn Mullin about the fascinating subject of dream yoga. We begin by discussing Glenn's own training in the six yogas of Naropa, with specific detail about his own solar retreats, including a special dream yoga retreat in which Glenn remained upright for weeks, never laying down, to deeply penetrate the world of sleep and dreams. We also talk about how to unlock the historically suppressed human inheritance of deep states of consciousness and extraordinary abilities, including dream travel and ancestral communication. So, without further ado, Glenn Mullin. So, Glenn, thank you once again for coming back on the podcast.
1: My joy, my pleasure, and my honor.
0: So we've been trekking through the peaks and valleys of the six yogas in these last few episodes. And I thought uh, now as we're in episode four of our uh, series here, I thought we'd come back and circle around again to how you learned the six yogas. Uh, in some uh, kagyu sects, for example, I understand that the six yogas are sometimes taught in group three-year retreats. And I know you had some really quite remarkable Teachers from the Gelug sect, such as Lin Rinpoche and others, can you tell us a bit about how you learned the six yogas and what that learning process was like?
1: Yeah, I think one of the main differences between Kagyu and Gelugpa, or Kagyu and Yingma, uh, as compared to Gelugpa Sakya, I should say, also is that. Uh, Kargyu and Yingma often tend to do group retreats, anywhere from 10 to 30 people and in a kind of an enclosed situation often and uh, sort of a, group, a lot of group practice. Whereas uh, Glupa and also to some extent Sakya, retreats are done usually individually. It's fair. Only some monasteries doing some kind of mantra count retreats where they want to do the qualifier, what's called as lay room, the qualifying retreat uh, and the fire rite that gives them authorization to do a particular kind of rituals, uh, sort of public service rituals, you could say, or community rituals. And, uh those often will be done as community retreats in other words group retreats and that was very common for instance in dharmsala in the various monasteries uh, to with those quorum of monks who specialize in rituals ritual performance and so they want to participate in the losar Torgya, vajra kelia purpa burning of all the uh, burning of the effigy into which all the negativities of the past year were collected. <laughs> they would do a 30-day collective retreat or a community retreat or and anywhere from 20 to more monks would do together. And so Kargyu Nyingma usually they do like that and they have a special kind of retreat building they do it in. I guess one of the benefits of that is that Everyone keeps on one another's case. <laughs> and so there's no getting out of it without getting caught kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas a uh, galupa and uh, to some extent sakya, uh, most retreats are done solitary. I've never done a group retreat in my life uh, within a, with uh, galupa uh, lamas like that. And Lama Yeshe uh, and Lama Sopa did it in Nepal, at like Kopan Monastery and stuff like that. But that was kind of an innovation. So my retreats were all, solidary, all solitary retreats. And uh, I would say that's the case for the 40 or 50 so-called Ritrupa, the mountain meditators above Dharamsala, who were training under Ling Rinpoche in those years. And they all would basically either build themselves a hut up in the mountains or find a cave or something like that. Any kind of circumstance where they would have a, a good degree of privacy and could focus on their practice. And at the same time, stay within uh, reach of the the, the Lama, the, of their Lama. In this case, it was always Ling Rinpoche with most of those, although some of them, Trishan Rinpoche also supervised some of those retreats and so forth. So in our case, uh, we'd first get the sort of you could say the complete what's called Wang Lung Ti in Tibetan, the initiation, the Lung, the oral transmission and the Ti, the explanation. And T, as they said, there's four kinds ways to do that. But anyway, uh, some are very detailed and some are like very literal bit by bit where you do a little like half of page one and then you do a retreat on whatever material is covered there, stuff like that. And others, is Nyuntri, which is experiential. And mine have always been experiential, which means Lama, you sit with your Lama and he tells you what he wants, what he thinks is best for you. You chit chat back and forth and you work out a schedule and work out a framework of your practice. So uh, my initiations were always received by Ling Rinpoche and usually the transmission uh, sometimes by Ling Rinpoche, Triton Rinpoche, sometimes by Dalai Lama. He also occasionally gave those as a sort of an add-on or attack-on, you could say, <laughs> to his various public events teachings. And when I was living in Dharamsala for those 12 years, he would teach usually for a couple of weeks in spring, Sometimes a couple of weeks in early autumn, and then in the winter, you go to other Bhagaya or Varanasi and teach for two weeks or a month, and sometimes add on so called lung onto those. And then we have they have what we call the Tru Pun, the practice uh, monitor, it means a Lama who's done those retreats and then who, with whom you have direct connection or direct uh, conversation or communication for how your retreat is going and how what kind of experience are arising those kind of things so in my case that was Geshe along dargate who the Dalai Lama had appointed as the tutor the the main tutor to uh, all foreigners coming to darmslam wanting to study not um, Tibetan Dharma and so generally, uh, one of those I did up in Tushita, which was a retreat center created by Lama Yeshe. And Lama Yeshe very graciously, uh, and he died in, I like think, 84 or something, but he very graciously allowed me to use his actual retreat hut up there. At the time, I think they had about only six. They're sort of built A-frame style, and each one was a complete kind of unit with... Uh, a little meditation sleeping area, and then a, a, a bathroom. And food was served, brought to the rooms three times a day from the main house. And those were solitary uh, retreats, meaning you you don't meet anyone during those times unless it's an emergency. I did the first, my first retreat like that, and a few years later, and. Um, I was able to uh, rent a house that had a cabin on the corner of the room. So it was about an acre and a half of land that was owned by a Indian army colonel as part of their, part of his uh, properties in the area. And he was up in on the army in Kashmir for many, many years. So that house was had been rented by a great Tibetan nama called Talama who passed away and after he passed away it went out for rent and uh, to foreigners and so I managed to get that for five or six years and they had a servant's quarter house at sort of at the back end of the private of the property and uh, so that uh, after that served whenever I do retreat served as my retreat hut. Sometimes later we moved again and I I built a little retreat hut myself just out of apple boxes and and, uh, a couple of two by fours which was uh, doing the no sleep retreat. And so during that time, you make yourself a box and sit up in it and you, you don't lie down or formally sleep. You kind of nod off a few times between sessions. But you do it as a kind of a practice of sleep-dream yogas.
0: I'd like to come back to that dream retreat, actually, because that's where we're heading in terms of the six yogas next. But what is a typical day in retreat if it wasn't that special kind of sleeping one?
1: Well, usually all tantric uh, practice talks about Tunchi Nalchara, the four-session yoga. That means you do one session in the morning before sunrise and... uh, Then you do one uh, just after lunch. Usually when you're doing four session yoga like that, lunch is a little bit on the early side, so you don't get all sleepy during your evening session. Then you do a, so you do an early morning, -morning, mid-morning, mid-afternoon and evening session, basically. Anywhere from two to four hours each, depending on your, Sort of enthusiasm, you could say, really more dependent on your feeling. So mine, I always schedule two and a half hours at a session. And usually you break that in two or your knees get a little <laughs> solid and your bottom gets a little, <laughs> uh, what you call it, a little bit of pain and knees and, uh, and buttocks <laughs> from sitting without moving for a long time. So usually you do about an hour or so, an hour and ten minutes, and then take a ten-minute break. Get up, stretch your legs. Usually you don't consider that as breaking the retreat. You just sort of get up and either do mantras slowly or walk slowly with mind on breath, that sort of thing. And so that's a kind of a very standard format, unless you're doing a special, specialized training. In other words, in other ways, your teacher or your monitor can give you any other advice that he, she thinks was more befitting of your needs. Like what? Or doing six uh, six sessions shorter, <laughs> or eight, eight one-hour sessions with, say, an hour in between or 45 minutes in between, or you know, just w- doing longer sessions with no breaks in between, depending on your health and physical conditioning and stuff like that. And sometimes other kind of things like, uh, you know, some people, when they do a lot of sitting and meditation, if the mind or the energies become a little bit lethargic, in Tibetan they call that uh, uh, Chingwa Tromo, sort of subtle lethargy, (laughs) subtle lethargy, just uh, coming to terms with not having the stimulation of the attention span, so to speak. No channel changer (laughs) in your hands. This uh, sitting with uh, just meditation can be in itself slightly exhausting and sometimes can can create a kind of a subtle torpor or exhaustion, torpor or exhaustion, and also, I think the body chemistry. You know, tantra is very much connected, as we mentioned in an earlier session, with what kind of chemistry is being, uh, the bindu or the tigle, is being generated through the five or seven chakras. In other words, what your psychoneuro system is doing, what how is your brain dopamine and, uh, and uh, what is it, ephedrons <laughs> and the thyroid and the pancreas and the ball, bladder, these sort of vital vessel organs, how they're performing and how the energies and drops, the kind of inner juices <laughs> that support consciousness, how these are flowing. So sometimes uh, someone will be told to just cut your session in half and do other kora. just walk around the mountain of your retreat, for instance, for an hour, like do two or three, one hour walks during between sessions or as part of one of the sessions or to do prostrations, that's not unheard of. Mandala offerings and six yogas is very popular because it's mentioned as one of the formal six, formal preliminaries. It could be a vajrasattva practice, which is a break from your main practice, and you might do that walking as opposed to sitting. So those kind of things, uh, depending on how how your body and mind are adapting to the uniqueness of a kind of a meditative marathon, (laughs) if one were to
0: call it that. And you must have begun those retreats in your 20s, I presume. And how how did you take to it, uh, those, those early retreats?
1: Uh, well, I think it's always... Um, retreat is always very pleasant when you start it because it's very exciting, the change from a daily routine, which is one kind of routine, to something very different. So... As they say, a change is as good as a (laughs) rest. So the first days of retreat are always very invigorating simply because one is so so enthusiastic and whatnot. But after it sets in and you come down to the sort of hard work side of the retreat, then you're dealing with a different kind of emotional environment and energy environment, you could say. But I think uh, Doing at a younger age it is a very good thing to do, very wonderful thing to do. That too late, they say if you do it too late, it's quite difficult to maintain the energies well. Your body, if you do them in your 50s or 60s, it's not as effective as doing them in your 20s or 30s. Uh, so for everyone, I'm not not for everyone, but for, as a general rule, I should, should say, there are plenty of examples of people who didn't start practicing until they were much older, 50s, 60s, 70s, even some in their 80s, and still had very good results. But as a general rule, starting younger does make for a more uh, promising. Does uh, afford a promise of more clear and quick results. Uh, I think that's generally true.
0: I interviewed recently a lady who had, did the first three-year retreat that Kalu Rinpoche put on for Westerners in, it was in Canada I believe.
1: Uh, yeah, on the Salt, salt Spring Island.
0: Mm-hmm. And she was talking about the and it's commonly said the psychological difficulty of that extended period of seclusion
1: Of course, in that case, it's not really total seclusion. Kalorimpoche always organize group retreats, the Karmakargyu tradition. So they're always in groups. I think the biggest problem with those is other people driving you bananas. You know, I think it really is. uh, I mean, there's benefits to it. Whatever you do, there's benefits. And there's some sort of limitations created by the environment. So the benefit, obviously, is that you have a wonderful situation with everything taken care of. And you've got people doing the, exactly the same schedule as you. So it's kind of automatic. You'll do it. You'll sort of have to fall in line or people people will notice. <laughs> so the fifth Dalai Lama, when his, in one of his commentaries, when he's talking about when you do retreat, he said uh, he makes a su- suggestion a lot of people go into a retreat and they start sleeping a lot. <laughs> And that is one downside is if you're by yourself, you may just think, oh, I'm a little bit lethargic. I think I'll just go take a two-hour nap in the middle of the day kind of thing. If you're in a group, you can't do that. So that's the support of having the group. And also you have some lama there who has completed the three-year retreat before, usually called a truban or a practice uh, navigator or something like that. Uh, But the downside is you're locked in this sort of place with another 10 or 20 people, and I think in Kalorimpoche's case, most of those were all strangers to one another before, because that was his first retreat center. So some people from wherever he had gone and taught, and they just hopped in. A friend of mine did that as well, and uh, I bumped into him a couple of years ago in uh, Kathmandu. He was on tour. Yeah, so the downside is, yeah, you can get driven, uh, driven a little bit bananas by that close proximity to people you don't necessarily like for such a long period of time. And I used to bring Lama tours to the West and we'd sort of live out of a van for a year. And these monks uh, who in the monastery, they, they aren't really connected with one another very closely they're just put together for their talents and doing sacred music and dance at Templeton. So in the monastery, they have their own friends and some of them are in different departments of the monastery and all that and being locked up in a van together for a year on the road, uh, they get sort of a, what do they call it? Cabin fever. was what we used to call it in Canada for people who would get contracts and fishing or lumbering or hunting or other sort of things. And you end up in a cabin in a remote place with, people you don't necessarily like. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there is that issue there. But that doesn't arise when you're doing retreat by yourself. You've got other issues. One of those are your certainly your own kind of in, inclination to procrastinate might set in. Your own laziness can, uh, of you know, the three kinds of laziness, one is doing something else instead of what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so those, those can always come up.
0: Were you ever tempted to disappear into the mountains and be one of those fifty or sixty people above Darum in sort of lifetime retreat? Is that is that ever something that that gripped you? Because you travel so much and you're so if you were if you went out there, did that ever take your fancy at that time?
1: Uh, no, not really. Um, I think uh, some people do those kind of retreats, but that's really a kind of a personal inclination. I'm not really an antisocial person by nature. And that's a little bit of an antisocial way of approaching Dharma. And there are people who have done that and do it successfully, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. And uh, from my side, I really uh, very much appreciated uh, you know, Ling Rinpoche, Trijian Rinpoche's wo- approach to practice. And also certainly Dalai Lama and those two or three lamas he appointed to guide us where the emphasis is on integration into daily life. The emphasis with uh, the two Jungzin and Dalai Lama and teachers uh, appointed, the lamas appointed to sort of give special attention to Western students was in integration. And I think... One problem with longer retreats is often people coming out of those are quite people have a real problem of getting back into living on planet Earth They're in some remote place with a very specific set of conditions and living outside of those conditions can be problematic. So I know from that first retreat on Salt Sea Island, Salt Spring Islands, I met several people coming out of that. And although they were very enthusiastic going in and coming out, the ones I met, one one maintained good practice thereafter, but two of them just kind of came out and spent like two or three or four years trying to like reintegrate into paying bills and uh, getting ordinary, tasks done because in those retreats everything's taken care of for you so leaving is a little bit like being a baby leaving the womb or being a baby bird kicked out of the nest so there's a lot of people do have uh, a lot of serious problems reintegrating i think in old tibet not so much because uh if you just stayed in retreat local people had been you know sending you up your food and whatever else you needed for survival and, and so integrating wasn't so difficult but uh in our Western society, after three or four years, when you disappear out like that, a lot has changed, and getting back into ordinary life or conventional life, or whatever one wants to call it, can be a bit of a an issue. And it is, I would say, in well over fifty percent of the cases of people doing a long retreat. Now, so for myself. You know, whatever retreats I did, I would just always go and discuss either with Trijan Rinpoche or Ling Rinpoche or Geshe-Darge was my main sort of monitoring person. You know, just discuss with them what to do and it would be a very very kind of smooth transition to do this. Why don't you try this and try that? And it's not like they say you should do this or should do that. It's kind of a collaborative effort, I think. uh, They... There's a lot of leeway in Galugpa to, to accommodate kind of the speciality of the, the student or the unique, unique quality of the student or unique psychological limitations and needs or whatever. <laughs> I like to think about it as, in my case, the unique ex- excellences of the student. <laughs> but all of those come into play And uh, for instance, uh, when I was uh, quite young in my training, maybe a couple of years, and uh, I'd grown very fond of Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa, who founded the FPMT, and under them there was kind of always a kind of a, a fury for people to become monks or nuns, to take ordination. And one year when Lama Yeshe came and gave a series of teachings, again, that sort of uh, the, the wind of that uh, of that emotion was sort of driving this the boats floating on the lake <laughs> of Dharamsala waters and I went to Ling Rubiche and said what do you think should I looks like kind of a nice way to go you know, you know get your hair cut you only have to one set of clothes one change for when you're washing them and you don't need much and what do you think and He picked up his dice and did a divination. He looked at me and said, no. (laughs) (laughs) So that was that. Then he laughed very hard. (laughs) He says, yeah, yeah, no need. Uh, Monks and nuns are, then he put it from the other side. People who have uh, uncontrolled minds and uh, uncontrolled anger and passion, it's good if they become monks and nuns because They have 253 vows of things that you don't do this and don't do that. And all of these 253 vows that they take or precepts that they take are all intended to sort of limit their ability (laughs) to fall into great fits of passion or fury. So he quoted that as kind of a statement by the Buddha. And he laughed and he says, no, no, just just practice, stick to Tantra and you'll do well. So, um, becoming a monk or nun, of course, is a Sutra ordination. There is no Tantric monk or nun, although some people will say he's a Tantric priest. You can become like with this robe hair, or you take 19 presets of things you should do every day, but you don't take any presets of things not to do. And so when Kev Ling Doji Chung said, just stick to Tantra, that was his meaning. I think in terms of 19 things to keep together every day, rather than 253 things to avoid every day. And some of those were things I wouldn't want to avoid, you know, sex I and mean, this very wonderful part of human life, not only human life, but all our mammals, not only mammals, but even fishes, although and not so exciting perhaps as mammals but I couldn't say on that issue for sure <laughs> and having an occasional drink of alcohol and things like that that monks shouldn't do because I think if you're in a big community like that too um, you have to have more don't do this and don't do that or you'll end up with internal fisty cups every few days between members of the Sangha. Yeah, so I never had any wish for that. And when in terms of retreats, I would just go to my uh, one of my three main sort of people Ling Rinpoche, and, Rinpoche, or and say, I'm thinking about this. What, what's your opinion and what's um, And uh, Just give guidance for what you think would be most useful.
0: So quite proactive really?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, you know Whenever you visit the lamas, they'll sort of coax out of you without being at all intrusive. It's sort of like, you know, when you watch some movies of Hollywood movies of like American native culture, the way the old grandfathers don't just put down an order from on high in some sort of Confucian sort of um, military way, but rather they'll sort of coax out of everyone those people's opinions on the subject under discussion. So if you visit, if I would, would visit Ling Rinpoche, Trishan Rinpoche or Geshe Darge, they would never just from their side say, oh, I think you should do this. Or I think you should do that. And uh, that's why people, you know, I once heard, oh, yeah. You often hear Richard Gere uh, did a little bit of Dzogchen uh, study with Sogni Toku. And you'll often hear it said, oh, yes, the Dalai Lama sent him to Sogni. Doesn't work like that. <laughs> Basically, you go to Ingloppa, you go to a Lama and you say, I'm thinking of doing this, what do you think? And he'll say, okay, or, or you may say, well, in terms of the training that you're doing, that may or may not go with their schedule for your other sort of things you're doing and look at other things in your life that are going on and see that it fits in well. And if you can get all that together, then sure but they don't generally say, do this or don't do that, or I strongly recommend this, or I strongly recommend that. What they strongly recommend in Galugpa generally is that you do four daily sessions of a length, each of a length as that's, that works with your own personal lifestyle. And I think that's why Tantra was very successful over the years. For instance, in India, we have King Suchandra and King Indrabhuti and people like that running whole countries ministers, you know, with ministers and matters of state and war and economics and health and drought and famine to deal with. But they achieved enlightenment, not because they ran to the mountains or did a three or a 10 year retreat, but because they basically maintained strong daily practice. I think daily practice in Tantra really means that you get the essence of what the training is trying to do. And then uh, the the new school Tantras, like uh, Galugpa, Kadampa, Kagyupa, Sakya, Ralupa, Shalupa, those kind of schools, the essence is the three blendings to always keep the... Center of your heart in a state of utter stillness and radiant clarity and wide awakeness (laughs) and your emotion and thoughts to have joyful and playful and that uh, when you actually move your physical body, it's uh, like a dance with it's a dance with uh, the universe in which you try to emanate uh, in perfect rhythm and beat and movement with the universe that you're in, with that particular point at the universe with which you are interacting. Uh, last weekend, I was teaching at the Jewel Heart Center in Cleveland and teaching Machik Lupton's lineage of Chud. And one thing I really love about uh, this sort of Chud uh, comes basically as a way of interpreting the Chakra Samvara or Heruka Tantras, but taken in a particular way designed by a great female mystic, Machik. My but you really only have to do four things. And uh, one is walk like a tiger, <laughs> which means keep your mind always in the state of uh, great bliss. Your energy is always blissful, joyful, engaged, fearless like the tiger as well. And then uh, hop like a yogini or skip like a yogini. <laughs> means that as you're going through all the things of the universe that generate great bliss, from the alarm going off in the morning and the smell of coffee and walking to your meditation seat and so forth, keeping in mind the reality that beyond appearance is the shunya or emptiness or infinity nature of every moment. And the third pointer, coil like a snake. between the dance of great bliss on the one hand and the experience of the infinity nature of every experience on the other hand, sitting perfectly poised between those two with your coil moving this way or moving that way to <laughs> fully keep uh, the perfect balance of infinity and the finite in any given moment. And then from the foreport, to dance like an angel. <laughs> Whatever comes, dance with it joyfully, dance with it celebratorily.
0: You mentioned that special kind of retreat uh, where one doesn't sleep or, as you, as you said, sort of nods off occasionally, but doesn't formally lay down. And th- that retreat is specifically to explore and learn the dream yoga uh, practices. And in fact, in our last podcast, you did mention a bit about the dream yoga uh, practices and how that interacts yes. with the Bardo teachings yes. and you sort of yes. blended those together. Could you describe a little bit that retreat that you did um, and perhaps weave into that uh, some sort of summary of, of the basic idea of the of the dream yoga or, the, or the, the four dream yoga trainings that are there as part of the Sikh yoga system?
1: Well, generally speaking, uh, the the problem with penetrating the, de- the dream state is really comes down to one's ability to introspect, if you will, or turn consciousness from sensory activity to inner activity. Uh, that really means when we're walking around, an airplane flies by over a head or an eagle or anything You look at it, your mind goes on that and goes away from what's going on inside. So one of the lamas I know once said, uh, samsara is looking outside, nirvana is looking inside. So nirvana here meaning a kind of a place of inner peace where quiet and beyond stress, anxiety, compulsive thought patterns Obsessive, compulsive <laughs> emotions and so forth, beyond all of that. So, how does one get there is the issue. How does one uh, manage to turn about? I think oh, this word, this expression by Lama Govinda in Foundations of Tibetan Buddhism, a book he wrote, I think, in the late 50s, early 60s, I can't remember. Uh, the foundation is of Tibetan Buddhism. He termed it as turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness (laughs) and it's a little bit like the movie, Rosemary's Baby. Normally we're looking this way. How do you turn the head around to look all the way (laughs) behind you at what's going on inside and uh, do that on the multiple dimensions. So in Tantra, well, they often speak about seven basic dimensions of consciousness leading up to fundamental consciousness or foundation consciousness. That foundation consciousness being called different things in different schools, but in Tantra often just mother clear light. And when we get more and more into more subtle states of consciousness, merely either remaining aware when you are in that frequency of being And secondly, coming out of it, having any recollection of it, (laughs) those two issues arise. And so I say sleep and dream yoga as a a yogic practice is really learning to stay awake in more subtle inner states when you're awake. (laughs) In other words, to be self-aware rather than to just Notice it as a drifting off into a thought pattern or drifting off into a kind of a falling asleep when you're sitting up, those kind of two states. So I think when one does retreat, part of getting to know oneself is noticing that behind the great theater of external display are the many fluctuations of consciousness that rise and fall and becoming more aware of those rather than of the drama of the external display. And then as one gets into them, being able to maintain some kind of meditative or yogic inner posture, and some, something like that is what it comes down to. So the s- not sleeping lying down business I think one reason for it is that you get a little bit kind of exhausted and then you fall asleep for a little while and it's a little bit uncomfortable so after a half hour or so just the weight of the bones pressing here or there will cause a little bit of bodily pain not enough to hurt but enough to snap you awake so in terms of the dream yoga exercise you can sort of Watch the seven dimensions of consciousness as the seven states of energy dissolution supporting consciousness as those energies or drops as they're called in Tantra, the Lung, the the Prana or the Bindu, as they dissolve, slowly observing or closely observing the transformations that take place. And in the course of one night, you can maybe do that 10 times because you nod off and then you wake up. So then you sit up again and then watch. (laughs) And so it's a way of sort of, then when you fall into it, immediately you're there, you start having some sort of dream. And so then you wake up and you notice, oh yes. (laughs) So gaining access to the dream state is sort of like being a little bit of a drunken sailor walking down an unknown street with endless bars and houses of pleasure and beautiful ladies you've known from your previous visits to that part of town when your ship pulled into that port, except it's all your dreams. <laughs> and uh, so I think the sitting up retreat helps with that a lot because you have eight ten times in an evening, you get to notice how you're falling asleep. And all the texts stay state universally that To yogically access the dream state, you have to be able to maintain meditative self-awareness during those seven energy dissolutions leading up to Mother Clear Light and then flipping from Clear Light into the dream state. And that has many other side benefits and many other applications as well. For instance, in the Zen tradition of Korea, at the end of every long retreat, whether it's uh, 10 weeks or two months or three months, a standard one is just a little over three months. At the the last week of that, usually they do it without any sleeping uh, and just sitting up all the time. And I think that has a different purpose than sleep dream yoga, but uh, we won't go into that here.
0: Do you remember the first time you managed to track those seven layers of consciousness and then flip From that clear light into the dream state? Do you remember the first time that that happened?
1: Well, maybe. You know, uh, it's always difficult to tell, I think, what is your imagination, what is wishful thinking, and what is uh, an actual identifiable state. Uh, You know, so, and secondly, I think in the Buddhist tradition, one isn't supposed to say too much on that side of things, or some people might say, you're boasting and bragging, and I'm an Irishman and we love to boast and brag, so we have to be especially careful not to boast and brag. <laughs> but I would, say, I would say, yeah, within a week of doing a retreat one has a distinct experience in which it seems like that's what happens.
0: And from that point, the whole very fascinating series of tasks are to be undertaken within the dream state such as making things big and small and
1: right so uh, you know when we in that six yoga system from Naropa also the six yogas from Niguma, in both of those systems they talk about four sort of levels of competence And these four levels are accomplished by means of various yogic applications. Yogic applications, hair, hair, because you're fast asleep and you're in a dream state. So it really means a, a mental fluctuation, a fluctuation of mental concentration. Yeah, so in the first of those, just Milam Zimba in Tibetan, which just means when you're dreaming, being aware that you're asleep and dreaming. Being able to develop that quality which can recognize when you're dreaming and when you're not. Like for instance, right now we could be dreaming and just not be recognizing it. And if we were dream accomplished in dream yoga, we'd be able to say, no, no, I don't have to pinch myself to see if I'm dreaming or not dreaming. Even if you pinch yourself, maybe you dreamed you pinched yourself and you dreamed you felt the pinch. <laughs> So the first of that is being able to slip in and out of dreams without losing the sense of slipping in and out of dreams, being able to dream consciously and with full memory of the dream content. And uh, just to be able to be there and observe it as a kind of a inner uh, psychic drama or adventure so it's not a kind of a Jungian way of doing it, where you're going to analyze it or anything like that. Although, you know, I'm sure Jungians would have a field day (laughs) doing that with what many people dream. For instance, in Korea, I had one monk who could never dream. He said, I never, never, never dream. And so I I gave him a dream yoga instruction and uh, well, I gave him the initiation for um, authorizing Dream Yoga practice, then gave a basic instruction. And that night, all night, he kept dream dreaming of beautiful, very tough looking, but very beautiful, ferocious ladies coming and making love to him. And then he would have wet dreams. He'd have orgasms in his sleep, and the orgasm would wake him up, and he'd have to hop up and run to the bathroom, take a shower, and change his pajamas. (laughs) So we have all kinds of dreams all the time. When Gompopa taught people dream yoga, said he gave them a red string to tie around their penis as a kind of a blessing so that you wouldn't have wet dreams and lose your energy. Because once you release your energy like that, very often your intensity of your consciousness diminishes until that protein base is re manufactured within your body. So then for two or three days, you're sort of, what is the expression, running on a half empty tank. <laughs> yeah, so the first level is just that being able to be fully aware of you. I have many people come up and say, oh yes, I never dream. And sometimes I wake up knowing that I dream, but I couldn't remember anything about my dream. So that that first stage is just really marked by when you fall asleep and start dreaming from the get-go, as they say in Alabama, from the get-go, <laughs> you understand you're dreaming. And the early training is just learning to sit in that awareness and allow the dream to flow without any effort on your side to push it one way or push it another way. And the other three levels or four levels or five levels, depending on which system you're using, are just ways of building up the dream muscle, so to speak. Now, in one sense, you know, everything, this is part of illusory body yoga in, uh, in the general overall picture of tantric, the highest yoga tantra. And so that means it's really trying to notice how the sense of I arises in the flow of the totality of our experience. So whether we're awake or we're asleep, who am I? Our sense of self-identification, where is it? How's it going? How's it flowing? And how is it? What are the fluctuations in that sense of I? On what do they depend? What gives rise to joy? What gives rise to Uh, Trepidation and fear, what gives rise to celebration, all this kind of just noticing how the I sort of is like a balloon on a machine that blows up and then pulls out some of the air, blows up and pulls up, and what it connects with, and how all of this interconnectivity with things affects the sense of I, sense of self. And so during the day, the illusory body yoga between sessions is very much into noticing experience, looking at experience, and you're going, driving to work, to, or driving to the shop to buy some tofu to co- come carry home and add some horrible chemicals to them because you're a vegetarian who refuses to eat meat, but you want your tofu to taste like meat. <laughs> and so you bring it home and do all that to it. Well, noticing, how the sense of I is influenced, where in that equation, the sense of I goes and so on. So dream yoga, and it has really the two sides to it, uh, the illusory nature side, and the examination of the perceiver, the I perceiving or thinking that it is experiencing these things. and later to facilitate this practice, uh, then once one is able to stay awake in dreams quite, quite vividly and with good recollection of the dreams and without any interference or uh, without jumping in or jumping out, so to speak. If we put it in the context of the four examples I gave earlier of the example of the coiled snake being able to sit between a parents and sense of perceiver like a snake moving this way when appearance becomes overwhelming and will pull you off and you'll lose sense of the perceiver, going the other way when the dream object becomes too, too weak and doesn't maintain its presence. So when that is uh, set in, then going on to the other stages and uh, Milam Gyarpa uh, really just means changing elements in the dream being able to exercise conscious presence to some degree within the dream without waking yourself up. That's usually examples given are changing the color of your shirt in your dream. <laughs> Very small things like that. And other another level, Milam Pelva, being able to insert two of yourself simultaneously into the dream, sort of like a mirror image of yourself the twin you always wished you had. (laughs) And then observing how that affects the sense of self and so on. So yeah, you could say uh, a a deeper aspect of the sense of self. Now this dream yoga, as I mentioned uh, in our last discussion, I think, or one of the earlier discussions, it said it's kind of a preparation for bardo yoga because the way the dream body behaves The dynamic in the dreams, the dream world, is very similar to the way the bardo body or after death body behaves. The dream environment is very similar to the bardo environment. So learning to be relaxed, poised, radiantly clear in the dream means that same ability will be quite strong at the time of death and will travel with you into the bardo. It's like... That kind of statement, we see it made very frequently.
0: Regarding dream yoga, I mean, to get to that point where one is consistently aware of dreaming when one's dreaming is quite a remarkable achievement. And one reads and, and hears all sorts of stories about the things that can be done when that has been achieved, in addition to to, to the, the, the things that you mentioned. Uh, for instance, in Nam Kainorbu's book on the subject, he recounts incidents of him visiting his teachers, both alive and deceased, uh, receiving complete teachings, receiving termas, treasure teachings. And there are, of course, stories of prescient dreams, dreams of divination, or diagnostic and even healing dreams. Uh, yes. What sort of uses have you, have, you, have you seen dreams being put to in those sorts of contexts?
1: Well, uh, in the traditional texts on it, they discuss two kinds of travel and one is travel within this world, and the other is travel beyond this world, dream travel. And uh, like uh, Namka Norbu puts it in his uh, book, then certainly being able to travel and talk to one's teachers uh, who are still alive in this life, this kind of, you can say, traveling in this world, And then traveling to other worlds if once teachers have passed and traveling and having some sort of discussion with them. Now again, you know, if we say look at this in a scientific way, I'm not sure we can say any of that really happens. But the important thing in the Buddhist practice isn't whether or not a particular kind of test can measure something is happening or not happening. Well, what we're really looking for is some kind of benefit from us thinking it happens. <laughs> so, for instance, uh, one year when I was on Mount Kailash, and I thought I was probably not going to survive simply because uh, usually was not a dangerous situation, but uh, something had occurred that changed my normal physical situation. And so I was feeling a little vulnerable, like I may make it and I may not. And I think a lot of people get that feeling sometime on Mount Kailash Kora. And I was sleeping much higher than I normally sleep. Usually you sleep down fairly near the bottom, but this time we we're sleeping quite high at about maybe 17,000 feet. And so halfway through the evening or three quarters of the way through the evening in my dream travel, I had a dream of the Dalai Lama coming to visit or me visiting the Dalai Lama, you could say. We're coming together in a space and it wasn't on the mountain and it wasn't in his house. It was just some space place, celestial space or some place where it was like inside a circle of light or something like that. But having a very clear one-on-one conversation without the slightest sense that this was not a real discussion, not like watching TV or hearing something sad or like that, but having a sense of total 100% participation in it. And uh, in it, I made a couple of, I raised a number of issues. And Dalai Lama laughed quite hard and then gave me a couple of responses. And from that time, I knew, yeah, you know, everything's okay. This is gonna, there's no, there's no uh, danger here. There's no issue here. It's more another issue, something going on. So anyway, it was like having a direct audience with him, every bit as real as the thirty or forty audiences I had with him over the years of being in Darmstadt. It's a kind, you could say, of dream travel. Now sometimes. People will have those kind of lucid dreams naturally. And sometimes they can be done yogically. For instance, when you go to sleep at night, practicing dream yoga, you do a guru yoga practice. And I didn't do that that night. I didn't make any special effort. I just lay down and watch the elements dissolve and watch myself drift off toward the, the moment of the tipping point and the great leap across the chasm between waking state and dream state and lo and behold was carried on this whole other magnificent journey if you will. So I think that happens quite naturally to people as a just a result of nature or the natural quality of body-mind So i think one thing in tantra is not to not trying to get extraordinary powers or abilities but really to access all is all that is the human inheritance the human natural inheritance what is naturally available to us is not to build some sort of synthetic tool or something like that in terms of -of out-of-body travel on another number of occasions just dreaming of leaving one's body and going to meeting, Um, for instance, I've met my mother, my father, and so so someone might say, yes, you just dreamt about them. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. It can't be proved that I just dreamed about them. It can be proved I did dream about them. (laughs) Was it a visitation? Was I visiting them? Were they visiting me? That's an issue that It cannot be just stated categorically by one side or another side, other than if one cares to do so from one side. for Myself, yes, if I want to have some sort of direct communication with one of my ancestors who has passed, I'll do a guru yoga practice as is in the dream yoga manual. Go to sleep and making a strong intent tonight, I'm going to do this kind of a dream. And when you're in the dream state, basically pointing the mind in that direction, you could say, uh, "Dream yoga teaching goes like that." And those of us who practice dream yoga, practicing meaning trying to do <laughs> do the application as as taught. So that's how it's how it's taught. The other thing, like you know, Milam Girba, transforming things into the dream, is so that when radical dreams arise. Mm-hmm you develop the ability to flex the dream muscle without waking yourself up the main difficulty with dream yoga is the slightest thing can cause you to wake up and of course that's the end of dream yoga then you're in waking up yoga <laughs> if you stay awake you're in daytime yoga if you go back to sleep maybe the yoga sleep a dream sleep and dream again gosh
0: i imagine those sorts of uh... Well, experiences are quite, leave quite a lasting impression.
1: Well, I think life is itself a very amazing adventure for all humans. One problem we have in modern life is our life, the the dimensionality of life is really whittled down to very silly dimensions, (laughs) very, uh, very silly boundaries. It's like get up, go to work. Everything's put on waking consciousness. Almost nothing in the Western society is put on deeper level of consciousness. At the very least, if we talk about any emphasis put on deeper level of consciousness, is really more to do with just a kind of a devotion, devotion to God or devotion to something, devotion to family. But the other dimensions of reality are in our society, either considered neurosis or schizophrenia or (laughs) just uh, being downright crazy. That's unfortunate that so, you know, we basically as like humans hear like 1% of the range of sound. Now, if we can't necessarily change that range that much just by uh, willing it to change, but we do know that those other ranges of sound are out there and we can use machinery to pick them up. And we do that with all kinds of machines. And the same with uh, things we can see. We can see a certain distance and a certain frequency. We'll use machines. But our Western society has really developed uh, an amazing doubt, or you could say, a blasphemous attitude toward the power of mind itself or the multidimensionality of mind itself. It's really debased uh, the, the mind to be like the driver of a car. You can turn on the car and drive out your driveway and turn this way and that way, and get there and then get home and bring home a few groceries. and You know, carry the groceries into the house and cook them up and switch on the TV and go do a couple of internets. And <laughs> It's basically Western society, modern society in the last couple of hundred years have really totally doubted the, the viability of mind as an entity other than as the driver of a car. It doesn't really appreciate uh, any real sense of the, the depth of consciousness and the range of human experience and the meaning of those it's just something now, I think, that we're starting to look at. I don't like to go into it historically for why it happened, but it anyway, we, that's what we have today. And I think we're uh, us living today, one of the great challenges we have is to bring into human life some of those deep, deep venerations for the nature of mind itself that have been sort of chased away. Now, some historians say sort of blame Descartes on this (laughs) and his relationship with governments. After the time of Descartes, then the government would own your your body and the the church could own your mind. And so your mind should just be this thing which kind of gets you to church on time once a week (laughs) between that period, just sort of keeps a basic ethic, devotional ethic. And uh, it sort of became limited to that. So I think the generation and what the crossroads is to uh, bring back some of the respect for deeper conscious states that were held by many of the great ancient civilizations. And... You know, I'm not saying ancient civilizations were idyllic or Shangri-La-like or anything like that, but we had many great uh, qualities in ancient civilizations that have been lost in today's world and purposely cut out of today's world in order to create, fabricate the kind of plastic society <laughs> that we've generated if you will. So Aboriginal cultures in, in, in Australia are a perfect example, where um, dream dream travel and dream communication was considered natural, nothing extraordinary about it. But for us, uh, because we didn't have it as a Christian culture that, at that time, we considered it sort of the work of the devil, <laughs> or many of these practices in you know the buddhists of india and tibet again our culture tended to look down them as sort of deviltry or whatever you will and then there was just as pure superstition and all these kind of things you know the first book on the dalai lama written in europe was written by a christian missionary with chapters and headings like Showing, like the, showing that the Dalai Lama's of Tibet are the works of the devil and showing that the teachings of the Buddha are the works of the and so on and so forth. So we ourselves, I think, uh, had some of those as ancient Celtic peoples in Europe prior to the Christian invasions or the, the Roman invasions. And from that time, certainly there's been some sort of limitation on exploring that aspect of consciousness. Some fear of it, I would say, as well. But us, and not to blame Christianity or Christians for that. It's part of our history. Is we can't wash our hands of things which are part of our, our own ancestry, but we can try to correct them, if you will. And I think looking at the uh, deep respect that some well-preserved ancient traditions maintain towards maps of the mind and dimensions of consciousness. Is a very, very important work uh, for our generation.
0: You mentioned there deliberately cut out in order to produce a plastic society. Deliberately cut out by who? And what is the benefit of having produced a plastic society?
1: I think it's a worldview that developed really at the end of the 1800s, part of the colonial empire age, that sort of thing. But I think. Uh, You know, certainly it began with the Inquisitions, the witch hunts, the idea that any knowledge other than this basic utilitarian government government governing rule that characterized European states, that this was somehow negative, evil, and dangerous. So basically, something like two million People's who had any showed any degree of (laughs) psychic ability or deeper conscious deeper deeper uh, appreciation of the qualities of consciousness. Something like two million of them were put to death, and not always in very pleasant ways. It's okay if someone hits you on the head with a hammer from behind, perhaps (laughs) like they did in you know some of the communist countries during the shoot you or something. But you know. Very, very painful deaths. Just basically seeing these states as something that had to be eradicated from our society. And then when the communists came in Asia, them being a, the communists being impressed by this way of just wiping out anything which is a non-nine-to-five sense of the meaning of life, and just you know killing millions sometimes tens of millions of people just to rid to guarantee that this view that life is not a mere four-dimensional state that the, the, the dimension of mind and dimension of consciousness and psychic phenomena spiritual phenomena whatever one wants to call it is every bit as important saying that is the most dangerous phenomenon phenomena still we see in china today Falun Gong starts getting a little bit of strength because they're showing that just doing simple Tai Chi exercises <laughs> a few mantras can produce a lot more happiness than many more expensive activities. And suddenly this is seen as a great threat to communist control. Or their fear of the Dalai Lama and Tibetan Buddhism. Exactly the same. So I think... Th- The purpose of development of a plastic society is very often the five to 10% of the people who are using the other 90% of the people as work slaves in one way or another. It's in their interest to basically have everyone have this sense that yes, get up, put your kid in kindergarten quickly, then put him in school quickly so that he has a very good education and can go to college can come out and get a very good job working for well it used to be Sears Roebuck or <laughs> Naranda mines or something like this and that's the be all and end all of life and you raise your kids and then they grow up and that's you've done a great job you've produced the next generation of worker worker bees or worker ants and meanwhile, the idea that any of these could become anything exceptional other than invent a new teapot or a better mousetrap or something like that. And you know, then these people pat themselves on the back. Yeah, we've done such a life. is so much better. America so uh, this now uh, Europe. This and then what we've done so much easier. Now we can just like put a piece of toast in the oven and we don't have to like light a fire. Well, you know, that's of course. It's nice to have a toaster. Nothing against toasters. but. The idea that somehow this proves that a completely plastic society dedicated to nothing but procreation, the so-called rat race, and that uh, the mind itself is really just a little kind of like when you turn on a car, the the gas makes it go zoom. (laughs) And it's really, uh, I mean, it's no wonder that Human society today today, is a very unhappy society. Even in America, we have over 20 million people taking antidepressants. Meanwhile, we're patting ourselves on the back saying, greatest civilization in the world, all these freedoms. And, you know, people running around 20 million or more taking antidepressants. So it's a plastic society in that it doesn't... It's limited the human model to a very small framework of enviable behavior. Nobody wakes up and says, I hope my child turns out to be a great mystic or a great thinker or a great wanderer. People just have the sense that, well, I hope he does OK in kindergarten and does reasonably well in high school, gets into a good college, gets a decent job, makes a couple of nice kids. And that's all just kicking the can down the road and hoping the next generation will fix the situation.
0: Do you think the five to 10 percent that you mentioned retain access to those different dimensions? Or is it a wholesale denial even among that? If you want in the no group,
1: you know one of the one of the one of the books which was really instrumental in my young life was Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and later that was made into a movie that won Academy Awards for some of the truths that it told, but it really did bring to mind very much, and this has been said in many Buddhist traditions, many, many world traditions, that the, the real thinker thinks of, thinks things are exactly the opposite of what generally society is trying to project them to be. Like Dramatron, Lama Dromtapa said, great disciple of Atisha, most of the world has Golokpa, the heads on backwards. In other words, they're completely mistaking main points of life. And I, I love in the Chid tradition uh, some other analogies they use. Uh, from the beginning, see your body as a corpse. Think I'm already dead. And the uh, Book of the Samurai, when you train in martial arts, uh, often give that same, see your body as uh, see yourself as already dead. The reality is we are... We already have a death sentence on us, so everything we do should be in that context. See, as your mind is the bearer of the corpse, the one carrying the corpse to be buried or burned or thrown in the river or fed to the birds, whichever the four elements you want to donate it. And in the meantime, use your use your presence of having that corpse to achieve as much inner greatness you can yourself before you have to put that corpse down and also to benefit the world as much as possible because once you put that corpse down, your ability to transform society in any kind of a spiritual way has fallen from your hands. You have that amount of time to get whatever done that you think could be done. So I don't think the world is evil or bad or anything like that. So therefore, the Buddha used the word or in in Tibetans translated Kunsobdampa, this deceptive nature of the appearance of being, the deceptive nature of the appearance of the life phenomena were easily zishi, were easily... Distracted by the shiningness, <laughs> the shinings. What's often referred to as the eight worldly winds, and eight worldly dharmas in the Tibetan world. Fear of you know, chasing pleasure, hiding from pain, chasing gain, running from loss, uh, chasing applause, trying to repress criticism, and uh, chasing recognition or honor and trying to avoid people, uh, anything that seems too dishonorous, none of which has any meaning if if you're a corpse. (laughs) And so it's only as meaningful as it can be used. So like the Seventh Dalai Lama says, whatever you get in your life, see it as something borrowed that you can use in a creative way. You know, so the the human society goes through ups and downs and in India, this word kaliyug, <laughs> or uh, the down, we're on a little bit of a downspring, down, downslide for the last few thousand years, where uh, the rank materialism or gross materialism or vulgar materialism outranks other qualities. So, for instance, when we hear Martin Luther King say something, I look for the day when. Uh, People are judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Well, I think almost everything on Earth today, almost all society, probably 99 or more percent of people in the world today, judge things less on the content of their character, but instead on other superficial uh, landmarks, if you will. And someone very educated looks at an un, uneducated person and thinks that person is ignorant or stupid. Uh, educated person will look at the overeducated person and think he's completely stupid because he's so overeducated he can, can barely tie his own shoes. <laughs> we put our way of addressing everything on very particular uh, demarcations that are... Completely all opposite to what Martin Luther King was talking about. Of course, color of skin is one thing, but it's one of uh, hundreds of such ways in which we avoid looking at the content of character. Now, content of character in spiritual traditions is not something inborn. Nobody's born a good person or a bad person. They may have some some good things going for them and some bad things going for them, but In reality, if we look at content of character, it's not something that is just there. It's an ongoing day-by-day challenge for everyone in life. It doesn't matter if you're a New Guinea headhunter or if you're a Roman Catholic or a Buddhist or a soldier or an atheist. Every day, the content of your character is something which is challenged and is something which transforms day by day week by week month for month, and it goes in a sort of a positive way or it can go in a negative way or it can just become completely confused and tied up in knots so from my side <laughs> i think all those traditions that advocate looking in as the key to life happiness are much more useful than those looking out of course, we have to look both ways like the snake coiled in the middle <laughs> in the, the uh, samvara for analogies. We have to be able to strike out on the appearance of things and strike in at the infinity of things. But it has to be a balanced perspective and that balance seeing that the inner is at least as strong if not stronger than the outer because the outer is always in a state of flux and we have less power over it. The inner is something which is with us 24 hours a day. Nobody can, as Nelson Mandela put it in one of his statements, nobody can rob us of that. He borrowed that or stole that from a poem by Lord Tennyson, (laughs) and he quotes Tennyson when he says it, so he borrowed it. But uh, that's something that we can always keep that as our priority, I think. Then we're contributing to the de of society. <laughs> anyway, that's so dream yoga. Let's get back to dream yoga. Then it's, I think, in our society, Western society, it has not been at all a subject of discussion outside of Jungian interpretation. Whereas in the Buddhist world and many of the other ancient traditions of the world, uh, certainly north american natives and certainly aboriginals certainly in india we see a lot of discussion of it and some with the Taoists of china that those states of mind, dream states are every bit as important perhaps even more important than workings they are the, um, than the waking
0: states i think that's a wonderful place to leave glenn thank you very much
1: well my joy my pleasure Don well Don
0: i should believe they say here Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.